Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 26 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. This episode features a chat with my friend and sometime Costa Rican neighbor, singer-songwriter, son of Newfoundland and Labrador, graphic designer, pandemic bakery chef, and voice of the Cool Story theme song, Mr. Jerry Stamp. Seven years ago, Jerry had to step away from his music career after being diagnosed with a debilitating autoimmune disease known as psoriatic arthritis. That part of Jerry's career has been well documented in both print and podcasts. However, after several years on a new drug treatment plan and a change of latitudes that brought Jerry to Costa Rica, he has been performing again. We talked about that new development and all other things music. So let's just jump right into it. This is my conversation with Mr. Jerry Stamp. Hello, Jerry. How you doing? Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you. Uh, talk to you again. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time, um, but uh, I, I kept thinking that what we were going to do was you were going to be back here in uh, in Playa del Coco, Costa Rica, where you you have a, a condo across the street from where I am, and that we would do a podcast face to face. But uh, life had other plans for us. Yeah, it seems to be doing that a lot lately. Yeah. So just uh, for our, our, our audience, our audience will recognize Jerry's name because Jerry is the uh, man who uh, wrote and performs and produced the, uh, uh, the theme song for the show and uh, all the stings that we hear. And I, I thank Jerry for that every, uh, every episode at the end before we sign off. And uh, I just wanted to thank you again for that, Jerry, because what, what you know, the, the theme song, the stings and everything that you, you uh, helped put together for us got the show off on a great footing. You know, you always want to come out of the gate with solid, uh, a solid brand and all that kind of stuff. And that was a big part of this podcast coming out of the gate with uh, our best foot forward. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. It was, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's, uh, it's not every day somebody says, how do you feel about doing some sort of Randy Newman-esque kind of vibe stings and like, that's a lot of fun. Let's try that. Yeah. Yeah. We started talking about what kind of, uh, what kind of vibe we wanted to have for the, uh, the intro and stuff. And I said, Randy Newman, you're like, got it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and it's so fun because I, I love, I love the opener because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of retro. It's kind of, you know, it's just one of those things where six months later, you're not going to be like, Oh, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. It was just something kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit fun, a little bit schmaltzy, not too making fun of itself, but not too serious either. You know? So yeah. it's, I think it's good for this kind of show because you have so many moments where the show can be, you know, it can be dramatic and it can also be comical and it really depends on where the conversation wants to go. So that music, you don't want it to be something that's going to kind of pull people away from dra- drama and you don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, force them or hit them over the head with comedy either. So you need something that's going to be like fun and light, but not like slapstick. You yeah. don't want to, you know, vaudeville and like, and all that kind of thing. So <laughs> it's a, it's a bit of a tough thing to try to figure out, but it's fun. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you getting involved in the in, in the early uh, stages of the show and helping me, uh, you know, brand uh, brand it so nicely with your music. So, uh, so yes. So uh, the listeners do know Jerry, and I often tell them at the end of the uh, or every episode we say, uh, you know, go go check out uh, Jerry's music wherever you stream. Uh, but let's talk about how we met. So you right. are a 
part-time Costa Rican. You have condo across the street from my place. I don't know if you remember how we met. I posted something on uh, one of the Facebook pages, Coco Chit Chat, saying that I was that I, I was in need of uh, this uh, piece of audio equipment, and you were the first person to pop up and say you should go to Fraser Music in uh, in right. Liberia. And I was like, who is this guy on Facebook? And looked you up, and I was like, this guy's an interesting character. I'm going to try to see if I can uh, meet him. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, we were playing trivia together at yeah. the local bars. And I think we were actually hanging out at your birthday party within like two weeks of that too. That's right. Yeah. My 50th birthday party. Yeah. yeah. That was fun. Why don't you tell the audience a bit about how it is that you ended up down here in, in Costa Rica? Uh, so it's kind of a convoluted story, but I guess it's, it can be broken down fairly simply. Uh, I have an autoimmune disease called psoriatic arthritis. Uh, that is affected by a great many things. It affects my body in very vast quantities, very vast ways. But one thing that really affects it is barometric pressure shifts. Um, science doesn't know why, they just know it does. And I come from Newfoundland and Labrador, which is an island, well, the Newfoundland part is an island in the middle of the cold North Atlantic. So for a good six to eight months, depending on the year, you've got a lot of crazy swings in barometric pressure where in the middle of winter, you can have a 12 degree day and then the next day it's minus seven. And the next day is plus five. And the next day is minus 10. And it, because of that, it just really messes with my body. So I went to Costa Rica in 2015 and uh, felt much better. At the, t- at the time, I was walking with a cane due to the psoriatic arthritis and how severe it was. Since then, uh, I decided to start wintering there in 2018. Um, went down with my sister and her husband for a vacation, kind of for a month or two during the winter. And I just ended up staying there for the majority of the winter. And I came home for the summers and I went back for the winters. And I did that for a couple of years until this year, obviously. And yeah, I just found that the the climate there is very friendly. I mean, I'm not even a fan of the heat uh, as such. I'm not the kind of guy who goes to a hot country for vacation. I'm the kind of guy who goes to like Scotland and goes to a museum, but uh, it really helped. I mean, to the point where uh, by February of 2019, after a year of being there most of the time, uh, I didn't have to use the cane anymore. So I, you know, it was definitely, you hear some people talk about the healing properties of Costa Rica. And I think there are some truths to that. You know, yeah. it's, it's because it's so, you know, just, just, I mean, every day is 34 degrees, you know, and it's, it's the same temperature. You get up every day. It feels the same. There is some sort of aid in the, the consistency of that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, 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 it's pretty much consistent all the time. The nighttime, uh, temperatures about the same every single day as well you know yeah. uh i was listening actually a podcast that you were uh, participated in uh, not long ago with uh, a fellow newfoundlander and you were saying that there was a quite a few um newfoundlanders who who winter in in arizona yeah yeah uh, I, i've heard i've heard tell about that before that talking about uh, people who had arthritis and other and other issues were uh, you know affected by temperature um buying properties down in arizona but you didn't feel you were an arizona guy not so much. No, I figured if I was going to, if I was going to move somewhere again, like I'd moved, you know, throughout my life a couple of times, but if I was going to move to a foreign country, I wanted to go somewhere that's going to be a little more exotic. I didn't want to go to the States where I'd be like, okay, I speak English and now everybody around me speaks English and I'm just another guy. I was like, I want to go to a place where, you know, I can experience some sort of difference in culture that's going to be interesting to me. So, you know, I, I'd been to Costa Rica and I mean, I wasn't necessarily intending to move to Costa Rica. I still didn't even say I moved to Costa Rica. I say I split my time between yep. Costa Rica and Canada. So it was just this thing where I'd been there and I really loved that small town of Playa del Coco. I didn't want to live in a big city. You know, I've been, I've lived in big cities. It's fun. It's 
you know, it's got its, its perks, of course. Um, but I, I thought it'd be really cool to live in a small town and kind of maybe over time get ingrained in the the local community and see what the community is doing and get involved in maybe some sort of volunteerism or music. I mean, like a lot of my music career was doing uh, charity work and mm-hmm. working with other people, putting off producing events and helping people, you know, raise capital for charitable events or, or different causes. So I thought that the, a small town like that, that could be a place where I could get involved in stuff. You know? I was starting to do that, but then of course the pandemic hit and I scrambled home. So when we were last speaking, we were sitting together having a drink and chatting about life and stuff. You were kind of trying to figure out what we, what you were going to do because it was March and uh, our prime minister was calling people home. And uh, yeah. you, you, your, your situation was more complex than that because as I understand it, you would, uh, I don't know if it was a recent thing, but you had started going through a treatment that you had to fly home for. Uh, and, and that was taken care of in, in Newfoundland. And the whole question was, can I stay here where the weather is preferable for me and, and uh, you know, given everything that's going on and find that treatment here? And I guess the answer to that was no, because you ended up going home. Uh, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I I was planning to, you know, wait out the pandemic in Costa Rica, like many people like yourselves. But the problem was getting access to my medication was becoming problematic. Um, I do have to come home every I would usually come home every eight to 10 weeks, depending, and uh, get my medication or check in on my folks and do a few things locally uh, in St. John's that I had to do. And then I'd go back, especially during the winter. So that would mean like three different trips home, usually every, every winter. But the problem is the medication is very expensive. So when I started to look into sourcing it down there, uh, first of all, that was being a bit of a problem. Uh, and then I finally found a clinic that said, yes, they can get it in, but it's going to cost a bunch of money. Like we're talking a thousand bucks US every time I need it. So mm-hmm. It just started to look like it was going to get more and more expensive. And of course, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, is this pandemic really just going to be a couple of weeks, like people are saying on the news, or is this going to be months? And sure enough, here it is, you know, over a year later. So if I'd stayed there not working because of, uh, you know, COVID, like all of my clients dried up right away, like in the span of a week, they were all gone. All projects were put on hold. So there I'd be just spending whatever money I had left in my name on medication to stay in a country where I couldn't get, you know, I wouldn't be able to get any assistance down there, medical or otherwise, really. So, mm-hmm. um, so I kind of made the decision of my sister and her husband, like my sister really wanted to go home. She was, she was like, you know, we, we should go home right now. The whole pandemic was, was kind of freaking her out. So we decided, uh, okay, let's go. So we, we did it. We got like some of the last tickets available on flights out and we decided to do it on the 18th of March. I was doing a live stream, one of the first live streams. And I did it from a condo in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and afterwards, we were having a glass of wine. We were talking to some of our neighbors, and they were trying to get out as well. And then we were like, well, maybe we should hop online. So that's what we did. Like, Jamie was on his laptop. I was on my laptop. Joanne was on her phone. And we were just trying to, like, see who was having flights get out. Because I actually was supposed to leave on the 26th anyway, and they were going to stay at the condo. And then I was going to come back, like, a week later. Uh, my flight for the 26th got canceled. And uh, so luckily we found a flight out with like three seats available on Air Canada, almost $4,000 for the three of us to get back to Canada. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember that time very well, because if I recall correctly, you were feeling about as good as you had in a long time. And you were really looking forward to doing a big show at the Garden Bar. Everybody was sharing the promo for that. And uh, we were all getting excited to to see you. Uh, It would have been the first time I'd seen you uh, play live. Right. uh, Aside from your your, your live stream, you know, to to an audience and as you do. And yeah. so we're looking forward to that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden uh, the kind of, the curtain came down and, uh, yeah, yeah. head back home. So I'm looking forward to seeing that show. I don't know when it's going to be, but it'll happen. Who knows? You know, <laughs> whenever, whenever I get back there, I will definitely be, uh, 
trying to stir something up. I mean, I don't know where anymore because so many things have changed since I left, but uh, we'll see. One of the things I learned when I was uh, doing a little bit of uh, research on your life was uh, that when you were first diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, that you started looking around, figure out how you were going to deal with it. And you, at, at some point, you found out that golfer Phil Mickelson had the same diagnosis and that he had figured out how to treat the disease. And, and so is the treatment that, that you've been going through, is that the one that, that he discovered? Uh, it's not exactly the same one. Like, so I, I, I was trying to figure out what, what was going on with me and I was going to see specialists and doctors and nobody was figuring it out. So I was doing my own research, which, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing online, but of course, when you're not getting anywhere and it's been four or five years, Mm-hmm. You start to look for things yourself anyway. And that's when I stumbled upon the, uh, the Phil Mickelson story, how he was this pro golfer. He was like, you know, him and Tiger Woods, a couple of other guys were neck and neck for the best, you know, golf players in the world. Yeah. Golfists. Um, and uh, he uh, just suddenly like over overnight, he started having all these pains in his body and his game was, was you know, not doing very well. And uh, he started to get to a point where he was just like literally crippling over for no reason. He was waking up being unable to get out of bed. I was like, a lot of the, the stuff that they talked about in this article, I was like, that sounds like what I have. So I kept reading the article. Of course, the article was about how, because he's Phil Mickelson, he's got all kinds of money. He also had a really good uh, healthcare team. So he got a sponsorship from the drug company. So like he gets paid to take the drugs that he takes. Um, I do not get a, a fancy uh, a sponsorship from a company, but um, it did lead me to figure out what it was. Uh, now he tastes, he's sponsored by Enbro, which is a, a biologic. I'm currently on something called Remicade. So it's the same drug, different company. Uh, right. for all intents and purposes. But it was his story that led me to then do a Google search for like psoriatic arthritis, uh, doctor, St. John's, Newfoundland, and find whoever the doctor was, this name came up the most. I automatically took that name to my GP and was like, I want to go see this guy. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, cool. So it took, like, you know, six months or so to get in and see that person because, you know, healthcare. And um, within five minutes in his office, he said, I think you have psoriatic arthritis. I was like, thanks. What's the next step? Yeah. Because like by that point in time, I knew that's what I had because I've been reading so much about it over that, that six month period in between me discovering that it could be that. But I didn't lead him in any way when I went in and talked to him. I was like, let him make his you know medical decisions. But as soon as he did, I was like, OK, what do we do now? Because I've been waiting to get to this point. So now I finally got this diagnosis. Then I had to go see an actual rheumatologist because he was actually a, a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I got to go see a rheumatologist. That was about a month later. And when I went to the to rheumatologist, the first thing he said was, we're going to put you on this medication uh, or several medications. Um, but unfortunately, the way it works everywhere in the world is they start you on the cheapest medications. So they put you on, I think it's called the methotrexate, which is like works in like 26% of all cases. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I've already got a pretty bad case. But as soon as I stopped taking the other medications I was on, like I was just taking over the counter, basically a leave, like a naproxen. Right. Uh, as an anti-inflammatory, I was eating those like twice a day, which is horrible for like a year, but yep. it was the only thing keeping it at bay. Three days after I stopped taking those, I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. So the, basically the Adiprox was the only thing keeping the disease at bay. And as soon as I stopped taking them, the disease just like ran, steamrolled me and I was unable to get out of bed. I had to like go to a pharmacy right away and get a cane because I couldn't walk and a bunch of other issues. And, uh, so then I spent like the next two years just trying different medications, like six months on this one, three months on that one, six weeks on this other one. None of them were working. Most of them were causing all kinds of side effects. And then eventually, once you go through the barrage of lower tier crappy medications that nobody really wants, they finally say, okay, now we're going to try the biologics. 
Yeah. So that's pretty high end medication. It's expensive. So, you know, you got to have your insurance and stuff for that. But uh, once I got on that, things started to improve a little bit. And it gradually, over the next couple of years, became much more manageable. Unfortunately, in the meantime, it also meant I had to leave my music career because, you know, you're not touring uh, with those kind of conditions. Those some of the last gigs I played, I'd be like, you know, made song and all of a sudden my finger would just go, nope, not going to play anymore. It would just like hop off the fretboard and wouldn't work. Yeah. You know, as if like somebody was like, I just taped my knuckles back. So luckily I was like able to finish gigs playing with, you know, three fingers instead of four. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden it was like, I can't walk into a show knowing that I'm going to be able to pull this off. So I decided that it was time to retire, I guess. And it was affecting my my throat, my voice as well. So um, yeah, it became uh, evident to me that I had to stop and uh, figure out another, another path, another thing to do. Yeah, that must have been devastating. And then you, in, in, was it uh, 2014, you released Rogue Doubt, which is what you've at the time thought would probably be your final album, right? Kind of uh, was going to be your swan song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was, it was sort of intended to be my final album. And of course, since then, I've thought about the idea of doing other albums, but I mm-hmm. think in a weird way, um, I probably never will do another album. I'll probably do singles because that seems to be what people do nowadays. Yeah. Maybe an EP or at least release a bunch of singles and then put package them together as an album. But, you know, as a, as a proper like album, like cover to cover, these, you know, 12 or 13 songs are meant to be together. That kind of album. That's probably never going to happen again. So yeah, Rogue Doubt was definitely the uh, the supposed final album. Yeah, it's an amazing album, and it's you listen to it, and it's you, know, you can you're going to hear what you know. The, the, it's all in there. It's all the, everything's in the album. What you're going through. Can you give up now? Can you turn this around? Can you keep your heart beating? How do you live when you don't know how? It's beautiful and 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 uh, a little bit tortured, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty fair. <laughs> it's uh, I, I mean, I like to think of of my tunes as I was having uh, this sort of hopefulness to them, anyway. But mm-hmm. there is a definite definite darkness, and you know, I'm not exactly a sunshine lollipops kind of songwriter. So it's, yeah, well, yeah. I'm not a big fan of sunshine and lollipops either. So I love listening <laughs> to that album. It's, yeah. it speaks to me, but I, I, I also feel like I know you a lot better and what you've been through for having listened to that album quite a bit. And uh, songs like marathon man. I'm a marathon man. Can't believe that I'm still running, but here I am. I can't also just a, just a, another thing I love about your writing is um, you must have a lot of female fans because I, I think you write really beautifully about women. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you very much. Especially uh, that song, She. Uh, ah, I just, yeah. I love that song. It's a great song. Thanks, man. The 
So uh, we'll talk a bit more about your your music career and uh, all the other great things that you've done uh, creatively. But um, just uh, tell me a bit about the procedure you've been going through that's been helping you so much. It's, is it is it a drip? It's, it's basically an intravenous thing. So you, uh, I show up at the clinic and I go and I sit in a chair for about three, three and a half hours, depending on how long it takes each day uh, and when you, when you go to get it. And basically they're just, uh, they, you know, hook you up with an IV and you get so much of this drug uh, pumped in your system every six to eight weeks or whatever, or 10 weeks and how long you want to stretch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much it. You sit there and you get this drug and the drug really helps. So, yeah. So those have been the two big factors has been that, that uh, being able to partake in that and then having the uh, the lifestyle where you get to live here for part of the year or, or did live here part of the year and, and get the benefit from, uh, from the weather. Right. Like I think, uh, I mean, obviously the drug is probably doing the heavy lifting there, but, uh, but being in Costa Rica in a place where it is warm and, you know, you get that it's the consistency of weather. I mean, I, if I could live in St. John's and the weather would be foggy and rainy every single day mm-hmm. at like the same temperature, it would you know suck like play outside, but my body would find it some consistency because like, it's not like people think, Oh, January or February must be the worst for you. It's like, actually there's a two week period of March where it starts to switch from winter into spring. That's the worst because it goes up and down. There's yeah. a two week period in September, which is horrible because it's ping pong from summer to fall. You know, um, once it gets like into fall and it's like fall for three months, it's like, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if it's, if it's minus 20 every day, my body would get used to it, but it's the fluctuations that causes the problems. So, you know, where we live in Playa del Coco, where it's the same temperature and generally you've got two seasons like dry and rain. So yeah. your body doesn't even have to really react to the switch from dry season to wet season. It pretty much just overnight goes, okay, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So we're good. You know? Well, I met you in late 2019, and uh, as I understand it, about February of 2019, where you started really feeling the the benefits of the the, the change in uh, in uh, in location, where and you were able to stop using the cane. And by yeah. the time uh, you know, I got to know you. I remember going out. I think it might have been for one of those trivia nights or whatever. We walked for you know about a kilometer over over to yeah. uh, pub or the bar where we go to play trivia, or we were hanging out a bit and. And you were kind of chatting about what you had been through and you look pretty nimble. I, know, I definitely, I definitely got much, much better out of it. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the fact that uh, I was able to go to a gym, uh, you know, and it was a six kilometer round trip. So I would like leave my condo and walk the long way to the gym and that would be like my warm up, And then I'd walk home from the gym and that would be my cool down and six kilometers and that kind of heat, um, you know, you get sweating pretty good, which for somebody who is, basically dormant and unable to move for several years. Um, the idea of going to the gym is like a highlight. Yeah. You know? I mean, even now I'm back in St. John's, it's hard for me at this point in time to go and get regular exercise. I try and do things every couple of days. Like even if it's just some push-ups or something like that, or even just go to a gym to try and do exercise. It's so much harder because your body just doesn't want to in this current climate. You know, once the summer hits or the weather is better, more consistent. It's like, it's easy to do that, you know? Yeah. So, um, being in a place like Costa Rica definitely helps a lot. Uh, it doesn't hurt that, you know, it's, it's a beautiful country, it's beautiful people and all that kind of stuff, but the actual just environment is conducive to helping. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was a period where, um, you know, I couldn't really get out of bed. Um, definitely not in a hurry. Mm-hmm. If I, if I thought I was going to have to go to the bathroom at three o'clock, I'd have to start moving at two o'clock. Yeah. Because yeah, you've got to like, first, first you've got to get up. Then you've got to leave, you know, put your feet around the side of the bed. You're going to have to stop for a minute or so and catch your breath up to that. Then you're going to try and prop yourself up on your feet. 
make sure you grab your cane. That's another minute and a half, two minutes there. Then you're going to start to walk towards the, the bedroom door. That's going to take you a good like five, 10 minutes because every step you're going to have to stop and think about your next step and right. work yourself up to it. Yeah. So it, you know, it was pretty bad for a long time. And, uh, you know, there were periods where you didn't get out of bed. There was periods where you couldn't really move very well. Uh, and luckily medication and I, you know, I suppose a bit of perseverance kind of, uh, kind of helped you get through it. Yeah. And how are you feeling these days? Not so bad. I mean, uh, it's, it's definitely, you know, I, I'd, I'd be like to, I'd like to get back to Costa Rica soon. Yeah. But um, as the weather is starting to slowly turn, I mean, spring in Newfoundland is perpetual, you know, um, it's like the middle of February, it starts to get spring like, but then all of a sudden there's snowstorms here and there. Uh, it's been rainy and foggy here for like 10 days now, mm-hmm. which doesn't really bother me. I don't get bothered by the look of weather. Yeah. But I get bothered by what the weather does to me. So sure. um, I'm not super stiff right now. Uh, I use this, this um, AccuWeather website has like a page about uh, arthritis, a page about migraines, sinuses mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's pretty bang on. So last Saturday um, I woke up and I just like did not want to move. I, the one thing I did was I grabbed my phone. I checked out AccuWeather. It was like, Today is a nine out of 10, like basically don't make any plans, you know? And so I started looking towards Stay the, the hell week. home. <laughs> exactly. Um, and like today was a six, tomorrow's a five, but luckily I've got a show on Friday. Um, and um, that show, luckily that day is a zero. So I'm like, that's going to be fantastic. If there's a, if, you know, cause I can do the show as a, as a six or a five, but I mean, if it was a nine, I'd be like, oh, I don't know. It's going to be kind of hard to pull off like a three hour show. Yeah, but uh, at a zero, I think I'll be I'll be feeling great at that point in time. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to bring up next. Is that you know, from what I've been seeing on social media, you've been gigging, and uh, you haven't had the benefit of the Costa Rican weather, but it seems like you're still doing well enough that you're doing all kinds of gigs. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's definitely been a little bit of backsliding since I've been home um, in terms of the disease, but it hasn't been like. Full backslide. I'm obviously not yeah. going back as far as being unable to walk and being able to, to move freely. Uh, I'm not using cane or anything yet. Um, ideally, I, I won't get to that point, but who knows? Um, so I have been, you know, able to do some some smaller things, like mostly just a live stream. You know, you show up, play your hour long set. Now, this is going to be my first gig in front of people. I think I, I did like a short, like six song set at a charity fundraiser last summer here in St. John's when things were fairly open at that point in time here. Um, so this will be my first gig in front of people in a long time, like over a year since my last real gig, but also it'll be a lengthy one. So I think the last time I did a very lengthy gig like that was probably the fall of 2019. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. When I I finally started playing again. Um, so I, I did, you know, I have been doing gigs here and there, but they have mostly been live streams. So getting back in front of people into a live room is going to be a bit of fun. Probably a little bit nerve wracking too, but it'll be fun. Yeah. And when, sorry, when is that again? Uh, that is this Friday, which will be uh, April 16th, depending on when this airs. Right. So that means that things are much more open than they are in Ontario, per se, you know, right now. Well, we just came out of uh, our second lockdown, um, which luckily was shorter lived than our first. Uh, it was about basically a month, month and a half of uh, varying degrees where we just went from like, we're using this alert level system. So we were like full lockdown as alert level five. And we kind of jumped pretty quickly from four back down to two. So two is that you can have gigs in these some of these bars. They're at 50% capacity, only soloists, no bands. Um, you've got to be far enough away from the audience. There's all kinds of protocols in place. Yep. Uh, the audience comes in, again, at 50%. They have to sit at tables. There's no standing. There's no dancing. Um, 
and I believe it's all table service. Like they're not supposed to get up and go to the bar per se or such. Um, I think I'm not really sure, but uh, you know, they've got all these things, things in place. Basically everybody, if you're up out of your chair, you're wearing your mask, you're sitting at your table, you can take your mask off and enjoy your drink or your food or whatever. But it's, um, it's going to be kind of interesting because right now there's only maybe three or four bars in St. John's that are having sort of regular music performing. Yeah. And definitely of those bars, there's maybe only two or three that are doing original music. So, yeah. Well, I don't know how much you've been talking to people here, but that's pretty much how things are happening right here. We went out to yeah. see some live. We've been over to see a couple uh, artists at uh, Coconuts. Uh, last night we were over at uh, another place, the, the Palms, to see a friend of ours, uh, Jose, singing. Uh, the only thing that's different, there's no dancing. You, you walk in, you put your mask on, you get to sit down and then enjoy the evening. 50% capacity. The only thing that they have is 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 they have a uh, plexiglass shield in front of the singer, so that right. <laughs> but you know what? We'll, we'll we'll take it. And you know, if it gets people back on stage, fantastic. You know, yeah. I mean, getting getting to play on Friday, it's definitely it's not going to be about making money at all because you know the bar can't afford to pay you really good money anymore because they're down fifty percent capacity. People aren't necessarily going to bars to get you know based and drinking tons of tons of beer they're yeah. going to have a couple of sips and like taking some live music and go home yeah um so the the money making side of things is definitely kind of a shutdown this is more i guess if anything like a vanity project or like a mm-hmm. you, you just really want to go out and do it yeah uh which kind of makes it good in, in that way because there's no uh there's no fakeness about it you're not going there to you know nobody who's performing right now is doing it because they want to make money they're doing it because they want to feel that thing that they used to feel they want to get back to the what what they enjoy about performing music yeah and then it's amazing for the for the audience too because for a lack of a better way of expressing this i i've said this many a time before uh going out to live music lately I, i'm a huge lover of live music it's a big part of my life and uh, when we're back home or here we we go to see live music all the time we go to see concerts in especially in the summer in toronto there's so many great bands that come through that we're just we're always out at live music uh events and um for that to go away just sucks and it's depressing yeah. and and um just being able to go out to see a friend jose sing or uh there's a, a lady here in town uh, who does shows here uh, uh fatinista who's a great uh singer songwriter i you just, you just feel like a human being again for like yeah. a better way of putting it you know well and, and the other thing the, for for me in st john's like the majority of my friends are also musicians and St. John's is very much a live music town. Yeah. So to not have music here, it's kind of weird to be able to go out and go to places where, you know, this, this is normally a live music venue or this is normally a live music bar or this restaurant has people perform later on on Friday nights, Saturday nights, and then there's none of that now in a lot of them. So it has become kind of weird that way. Uh, so it is nice to see people getting back into it. Um, hopefully, you know, the vaccines are coming now and slowly but surely people get vaccinated and, Things might open up a little bit more, and we'll get more comfortable. And maybe the maybe maybe the worst is over. I don't know. At this point yeah. in time, I'm not going to place any bets on anyone. Yeah, no, no, nor am I. But I, you know, I think uh, I think maybe we'll get to see uh, Jerry Stamp at uh, the Garden Bar, or whoever decides to do that show. Uh, you know, maybe maybe uh, early next year. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I mean, Canada's been a little bit slow, not a little bit, but I don't think we've done a great job of rolling out these vaccines, and it's a little bit frustrating. But um, I I think we can see the we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know when. Do you know when you're going to get yours? 
not yet, but I think because I'm on uh, immunosuppressant medication, I'm supposed to be in what's called phase two in Newfoundland Labrador. Mm-hmm. So uh, my parents just got theirs. My dad got his today. My mother got hers yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so first dose. Just which is great. First doses too. Yeah. Right. So hopefully in the next uh, week or two, I should know about pre-registration. But for me, pre-registration could be like you pre-register and then you don't find out for like a month, month and a half when they contact you about registering. And then it's another week or two before you actually get it. Um, so they're saying, I think they're saying it nationally now, but they were just saying it provincially uh, about two weeks ago that by the end of June or by Canada Day, they thought that every Canadian who wanted one would get at least the first vaccination. Yeah. Um, so I believe that's still standing. But of course, then there's another story that came out like today about how another company that's supposed to be shipping vaccines is like, yeah, they're going to be a little bit later than we thought. So right, yeah. that seems to keep happening, you know, um, but that's, that's sort of unfortunately understandable. You know, we're a smaller country in terms of population to, you know, for example, our Southern neighbors, you know, mm-hmm. um, Donald Trump, love him or hate him. Every drug company that came out and said, we've got a vaccine. He's like, cool. We'll take a hundred million. Mm-hmm. You know, and Canada's like, can we get like 10 or 12? And it's like, we didn't have the money to buy all those. And then, well, we also did, weren't so. producing any of it on our own soil, though. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's that's a major snafu, which I'm hopeful will be uh, rectified in the next couple of years. You'll see a, <laughs> a major multi-billion dollar uh, place built somewhere in Quebec, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk a bit about your 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 career, my friend. Uh, you you started out uh, singing for a choral, right? Is it high school? Uh, yes. Yeah, sort. Of. I mean, I don't know if I. I guess I started out singing choral. Kind of both happened at the same time. Um, I was not planning to be a singer. I didn't sing in front of other people at all. Um, basically, you remember mixtapes? How people made mixtapes for oh, friends? Yeah, yeah. I was making a mixtape for a friend of mine one night, and we were actually talking on the phone. And uh, she had to go and do something or like her parents were calling her or something. And so it's very cool. I'll, you know, I'll wait here. I'll still be doing the mixtape. So I was making something. I don't know what song it was, but anyway, I started singing along with it when she was gone and she came back and listened and didn't interrupt me when the song was over. She's like, you got a really nice voice. You should sing. And like, you should join the chamber choir. I think mm-hmm. she was in the chamber choir. Um, and they were just doing auditions like sometime in the future. And I was like, no, that's, that's not for me at all. Anyway, a week or two later, I suddenly get called down to the office and it's like, uh, I go there and they're like, uh, you're late for your chamber choir audition. I'm like, my what? And they're like, your chamber choir audition, you signed up for it. I'm like, no, I didn't. They're like, well, you better get down there now because so I go down and of course, Susan Quinn, the conductor, the world renowned conductor was there and she's like, all right, so sing, you know, happy birthday, sing O Canada, sing mm-hmm. these different songs. I'm like, okay. So uh, I was nervous as hell. And she, I was, I started as a bass. Yeah. And within like seven months or something, but within about a year or so, I went from being a bass to being 10 or one in choir. And that basically just started, started me on a certain path. But at the same time, that same year, I think it was, I was playing drums with two other guys, just two guitars and drums. We didn't have a bass, just didn't have a singer. And we were just kind of messing around with songs, you know, mostly covers. And uh, one day we went out, it was a really nice day in May. I think it might've been a teacher strike. And so we went outside on the front patio of my buddy's parents' place and they brought out the acoustic guitars. We're just sitting there and start singing some songs all together. And I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't even realize it, but I kept singing and they both stopped. And when we finished the song, they were both like, we're going to get another drummer and you're going to be our singer. <laughs> so I was kind of, in, for for bad, lack of better terminology, I was duped into becoming a singer. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of became my thing. So That never struck you on, it, on, 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 on your own, though, when you were singing yourself? Oh, my God, I've got a nice voice. Did uh I mean, I always loved the idea of singing. Else? I definitely had, I definitely wanted to be a singer, but I didn't mm-hmm. have any confidence in the idea of how to do it or where to, you know, go about about doing it. Um, I wasn't really a guitarist much at the time. I was, I had some guitar lessons when I was a kid, and I played piano growing up, but I was never. I didn't sing in front of people. I was very nervous and shy. 
Um, in some ways, uh, doing music is the way that kind of broke through a lot of anxiety for me. I got, sure. I got comfortable doing that. Next thing you know, I was doing acting and stuff, all the stuff where I'm on stage for a guy who's very shy. Like mm-hmm. Even now, if I meet people, I try to be as open as polite as possible, but I'm actually a very shy person. Uh, I've broken down a lot of those barriers within myself, but it's still like, if I meet somebody brand new, I might be like, hi, how you doing? And that's it for like a half an hour. And I try, my conversational technique is usually to let other people talk. Yeah. You know, I just listen to what they say and then I'll interject a few things here and there. So I guess I've just gotten more comfortable over the years, but it was, it was pretty hard when I was in high school in terms of, you know, being the shy kid who somehow became a singer. So I kind of ripped off like a, a bit of David Bowie and a few other artists who had the kind of the stage persona thing. I didn't have a particular like outfit or makeup or anything I did, but I just got yeah. myself psyched up in a certain character and then went out on stage and did it. And that seemed to really help for a couple of years until all of a sudden one day I just felt like I didn't need to do it anymore. Yeah, I get that. I, I think, I think a lot of performers um, are introverts mm-hmm. and, 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 and that's how they tell their story. Yeah. You know, through their medium, uh, or their, their, uh, you know, through that medium, whatever it is, whether it's painting or whether it's singing or being a guitarist or uh, whatever it be, that's how they express themselves. Yeah. So you found that I'm, voice. I think of myself as a bit of a ambivert, which is kind of like, um, I'm not even sure it's a real term. I read it in a couple of places, but basically you're like, on occasion you're an introvert and on occasion you're an extrovert mm-hmm. you know it's, it's weird like i mean even after 20 something years of performing i still get nervous every time i go on stage yeah but i but i also know that as soon as i strike that first chord i'll be in the zone i'll be fine mm-hmm. um so it's kind of a weird thing that you know you have this like this understanding that there is this you know crushing anxiety but you're like well, as long as I can make it to the point where I get on stage, we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But the 20 minutes before is like my, my guts are turning and I feel like I'm going to throw up, but I still do it for whatever reason. I guess I, you know, I guess I love it that much. So I remember reading uh, an art, uh, an article or somebody's recounting of Sir, Sir Lawrence Olivier stepping out on stage and throwing up in a pail before he got on stage. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's that thing that tells you that what you're doing is important to you. Yeah. You yeah. know? Um, yeah. I think, uh, I don't, there is no better feeling, I guess, than facing your fear and conquering it. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously for some people, that's an unfortunate possibility in some ways, especially people with severe anxiety. I mean, I get anxious. I have depression. I have all these things that are, you know, primarily brought on by my disease. But um, for whatever reason, performance has never been a concern, like in terms of like, I know I can do this. Like I, I mean, that, that's kind of like why I, I did, a, I did a, a Bachelor of Classical Music. And the reason why was because... Uh, because I was afraid that maybe I didn't have what it takes. So I was like, if I'm going to do music as a career, because I fought it for years, I was like, I'll go, I'm not going to go into music. I'm going to go and do like, I'd looked at chiropractic schools. I looked at, you know, mm-hmm. geology programs and I kept wanting to go back to music. So I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to go and study and learn so that people might not like, they might not like what I do, but they can't say, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so once I got to the point where I knew what I was doing, you know, for all intents and purposes, you get that piece of paper that says you're an expert in music. Mm-hmm. Um, you do get that sort of, I won't say ego boost, because I don't feel like I have much of an ego. I'm sure there's people out there rolling their eyes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I do feel like it gave me that boost to say, you know what you're doing. Just keep your wits about you and do it the best way you can. You know, so I, I feel like that's, that's always helped me as a performer. Like I can still get on stage and feel nervous and stuff, but I'm like, mm-hmm. once I get there and once, like I say, once I struck that first chord, it's all out the window. It doesn't matter. You know, yeah. you, it doesn't matter who's looking at you. You just don't worry about who's in the audience. I just, you're performing for you 
the songs you wrote that you want to hear. And I just assume that because I have friends who like the same music I like, but if I write a song that I like, then there must be somebody else out there who's going to like that song. No, I don't, I don't chase, I don't chase the hit. I don't chase the style of, of whatever song is popular on the radio. I just write a song that I like for me Yeah, and hopefully people will like it. And so far it has worked out where a lot of people have. So yeah, yeah, no, keeps keeps going. So do you, do you, do you, do you feel like you are your truest self, your, your, your truest Jerry, your truest, it, you know, you, when you're on the stage? Um, I guess so. I mean, I don't have like a, I've said to my dad before, for example, he used to say to me, like, um, you know, you look at somebody like Elvis Presley as an entertainer, mm-hmm. but then you look at somebody like Roy Orbison, who is a singer, yeah. you know, Roy Orbison would go out on the stage. He'd sing three songs. He'd say, hi, how are you tonight? Mm-hmm. Then he'd sing 10 more songs and say, thanks for coming on. Good night. That's all mm-hmm. he'd say. Yeah. He didn't worry about talking to the audience or explaining the songs. He just sang the songs as beautifully as possible. Elvis would go out and he'd dance around and he'd interact with the crowd. He'd be, you know, cool front man. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I always thought of myself as more of a, a storytelling Roy Orbison. Right. You know, I go out and I got no problem to talk about the songs, but I'm also a bit of a buffoon. Like as a person, I will, I sing these, these dark, heavy songs, emotional songs. But then when I'm talking between songs, I'm self-deprecating. I'm full of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely, you know, make fun of myself and, and the songs even uh, to an extent that I think makes people, I guess, I hope that it endears me to people. You know, uh, so I guess to an extent that means I am the most, you know, true to myself version of me on stage. There is no, there is no pomp and circumstance. There's no airs. I'm not putting on uh, a character like I had to get into when I was a kid mm-hmm. to get on the stage. Now I walk on stage and it is literally just me Yeah, for all yeah. my, you know, all my foibles, all my follies, just yeah. whatever it looks like or whatever it sounds like. That's me. You don't have to be Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. I could never wear that leotard. <laughs> <laughs> well, but what you're saying too, though, is 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 uh, how you approach music. It just sounds like a, a very uh, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador approach to presentation of music and what that is, mm-hmm. and the storytelling and the, the tradition and that sort of right. thing as well. Yeah, um, I've always, I mean, I, I have friends of mine who are like literal storytellers. Uh, mm-hmm. Like my buddy Ian Foster is an award-winning poet, an award-winning uh, prose writer and songwriter and filmmaker. He's the guy who, like, he tells stories in a storyteller sense. You know, here's the here's the character development, here's the arc, here's all the stuff. The stuff that I write, I said this to a friend of mine a couple of nights ago, we were having a conversation about songwriting, and the stuff that I write has always been to me um, less a story of an arc and more like a snapshot of a moment in time. Yeah. I feel like my songs are soundtracks to moments in a story as opposed to being the full story itself. Yeah. So like when you watch a movie and there's the, 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 the penultimate, uh, you know, scene where the, the, the guy and the girl kiss for the first time, that's my song. That's, that's in the background of that. Yeah. It's not the score for the entire film. It's the scene for that one scene. Yeah. I get know? That. And, uh, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff I've always written. I mean, movies and TV shows have always been a big part of my music experience. Um, I mean, Score composition is some of my favorite stuff. Like some of my favorite composers have been film composers. Um, and it's because the way they use a lot more color, a lot more dynamic, things are so expressive. Um, which is why I don't consider myself like a straight up pop artist, like a lot of my friends would, or, or a folk artist or a country artist. I love the term singer songwriter. I understand what you're saying. I, I love that. I love that in, 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 in a singer songwriter uh, where uh, you, you, you hear the lyrics. And you see the eight millimeter film 
mm. in your brain. Like one one person who's really good at that is um, is Bruce Springsteen. When I oh, of course, to yeah. Thunder Road, first couple of lines yeah. in that song. But uh, you, you can see the, the the grainy eight millimeter film, you yeah. know, as he sings those lyrics, and it just it gives you chills. It gives me chills when I hear that kind of music, and that's what you're talking about being able to write yeah. in that fashion. The screen door slams, Mary's dress waves. Like a vision, she dances across the porch as the radio plays. Well, I think sometimes you, you know, um, describing the scene, it's almost like poetry versus prose. You know, so a poet would probably describe the, a scene in a very different way than a storyteller, mm-hmm. like a prose writer. So a prose writer is going to tell you all these little nuances that, you know, you might not really understand why they told you that specific detail, but it'll be interesting in the story at some point later on. A poet would almost have a couple of throwaway lines that just sound really cool. You don't really know why that yep. line is there, but you're like, that's a really cool line. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm somewhere, you know, this is not pretentious. Um, I think I'm somewhere closer to that than, than a prose writer. Um, yep. I mean, I do write fairly literally, lyrically, but I also use a lot of, uh, a lot of innuendo, a lot of, uh, Double entendre, a lot of lot of mixed messaging, metaphorical writing. Um, mm. I do a lot of double meaning stuff. Something something I got into when I was in university. Um, here's here's a bit of an aside for you. I um, I was studying uh, Kavali music, the uh, mm. Sufist Islamic music from Pakistan, uh, chiefly among them Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, who was one of my favorite singers. And uh, I discovered that a lot of their songs were called love and devotional songs. Mm-hmm. So a set of lyrics read one way could be a devotional song to Allah, but read another way could be a love song to a wife or a lover. And right. I was like, that's really cool. Every single lyric has a double meaning. And I'm like, that's what I've, I've kind of been doing on occasion here and there. I just kind of, it's, it's now seeped into my writing to the point where it kind of happens almost uh, without me even acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. But when I finish writing something, I'm like, Oh yeah, like I did it again. And so it's kind of <laughs> weird, but like it's, it was something that kind of fascinated me. And I've always been fascinated by those, extra musical techniques that people use, especially in lyrics and, and vocal melodies, you know, tone painting, word poems, and stuff like this. Like that's the stuff that really got me jazzed in music school. You can probably hear I'm getting more excited to talk about it now. <laughs> I'm, I'm geeking out a bit. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's exciting though. The, the, yeah. When you, when you hit on something like that and it, uh, it informs what your voice is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. That sounds like that's the case. Uh, and uh, so so back in the day, you're, you're, you're involved with the, uh, the choir and then all of a sudden you're traveling with the choir, right? I mean, that, you're, that took off pretty quickly, right? Well, the choir, I mean, choirs in Newfoundland, uh, because it is an island, um, there's not a massive, you know, a lot of places you can go that you can afford to go. So a lot of choirs, what they do is we, we, we lovingly refer to it as the Bay Tour. So um, you'll do like, you know, a trip to, uh, from St. John's to, you know, Clarenville, like to three hour drives kind of thing away. You get a bus and a couple of teachers or, or parents or something or chaperones. You go and you just do basically a weekend weekend tour. So you leave town on Friday afternoon by Friday afternoon, you're playing or later Friday afternoon, you're singing in a, in a choir or a school somewhere around the Bay, around an outport. And then you go do like two or three concerts a day and you're home on like Sunday or Monday. It's, it's pretty fun. Um, because of those tours, one of the choirs I was in, uh, Holy Heart of Mary Chamber Choir, um, Holy Heart of Mary was the regional high school. Um, that choir was invited to a competition in Germany and, and Vienna. Um, and we went to it. We fundraised for like a year and a half. It was crazy. 
uh, we went and we won. You know, we, we won like we won best chamber choir and best concert choir because we had to be in both because there wasn't enough chamber choirs. Mm-hmm. Um, so a concert choir is much bigger than a chamber choir. Um, we had, I think, 33 voices and uh, we competed. We won like the this, the actual award for the, the event um, called the Youth and Music Festival. And then the mayor of Vienna also bestowed upon us the city of Vienna trophy, which is only given out every so many years when they think something so incredible has happened. Yeah. So how old um, were you at the time? Uh, at that point in time, I was 18. Wow. It was my last year of high school. Yeah. That, that must it was, have been it was, such it an amazing ride. It was wild. I actually, um, <laughs> I kind of suffered a bit of a depression after that because you had this thing that you were working towards for like, you know, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then you come home and I started to read these, these stories about like Olympic athletes, people who've trained their entire lives for this moment. And they get to, you know, they win the gold medal and they come home and all of a sudden it's like, now what do you do? Yeah. So you sure. kind of, so it kind of was a bit of a, a bit of a letdown afterwards, but I mean, the high of those moments was pretty huge. And we came home and there was like, you know, uh, basically a, a parade for all intents and purposes. They picked us up at the airport in all these like really nice classic cars. And like, they drove us like an event right away. And it was pretty wild. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, no I, <laughs> I can understand how you could go through something like that. And then it's a, uh, yeah, it's a little bit uh, difficult on the back end. It's like, where's the mayor of Vienna now? <laughs> yeah. yeah <we're... laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what he's doing. <laughs> So you go from there and then you, uh, well, you, uh, you, you, you studied classically, you, uh, university level. And, uh, I know that, uh, you were, you were saying in, uh, uh one of the uh, interviews that I was listening to that, uh, it was a little bit weird studying at the classical level after being sort of a, a rock and pop person that, uh, that sometimes those institutions can be a little bit snobby and not know how to deal with, with somebody who's coming from that background, but yeah, you were uh, had, successful uh, in that my- regard. My first, uh, my first year, year and a half, I definitely, I wanted to quit like every day because I just got this feeling from a lot of my instructors, the professors there that I didn't belong and that just, I wasn't going to make it. I had a lot of pressure on that kind of, but I wasn't the only student to, to be like that. Um, but luckily I stuck it out and many of us did. And by the time we got into, you know, probably a year and a half, two years in, that's when you started to see different professors. Cause obviously every semester different professors. Mm-hmm. So I started to meet different professors who, for whatever reason, took a liking to the fact that, you know, we were pop and rock musicians and played downtown and, and they were supportive of that. Like some of them even came to see us play on the weekends uh, and were really like, you know, I love what you're doing. It's cool. How you're doing this. Have you ever thought about this? And they would compare it to like, you know, one of the songs you played tonight reminded me of this, this song by Prokofi. I mean, but what, you know, and it was really, that was the kind of energy that we needed, I think. And luckily I can say that the school I went to, now seems to be very open to a lot more pop and rock uh, students, but then it's because there's younger professors now. A lot of the people who were there when I was there have since retired uh, or left or whatever. Not everybody was bad, obviously. There was a few professors who were kind of indignant of somebody like myself, um, thought or assumed that because we were, you know, downtown rock musicians that we wouldn't be able to cut it. But there were other professors who were very like, hey, cool, welcome. You know, let's let's see what you got. You know, um, luckily, my, my, my voice professors uh, were generally always pretty cool with that. I did have one professor who said um, she didn't want me performing downtown because she said I was going to ruin my voice. And I was like, sorry, but that's how I'm paying for school. So, yeah, you know. yeah. I, I sort of jumped ahead there and, 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 and talked about how you were from a rock and pop background. Uh, we we're talking about choir, but it's just uh, that uh, like most people, uh, uh, you uh, you grew up listening to rock and pop. And uh, yeah, and that was your first love. Mostly rock and pop, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of metal as well, a lot of Iron Maiden, a lot of Anthrax. I used to listen to, um, yeah, not Anthrax. I used to listen to Iron Maiden. <laughs> oh yeah, Maiden's killer, still good. <laughs> um, but I, I grew up listening to pretty much everything. 
um, rock and pop being my favorites. And uh, I know I played in a couple of bands in in high school and stuff, but they were like, you know, you, you play like you rehearse like every week for like six months and you play one show and you break up. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way it goes with, with high school bands. Um, and then I played in like one semi-serious band uh, towards the end of high school. And then when university started, I was doing solo gigs, yeah. um, which kind of came about in a backwards sort of way. Again, like I wasn't planning to do solo career, but it just kind of came up where people said like, why don't you play a show? And somebody would be putting together something and say, you know, like a small high school show in the basement theater with like 40 people maximum. And they would say like, why don't you come and do a couple of songs? So I would. And through that, I ended up, you know, meeting a buddy of mine who I hadn't seen in years. Like we grew up in the same neighborhood, but we didn't really know each other very well. And he was like, we should jam sometime. That led to the, um, the earliest formation of what became King Nancy, which was my first uh, kind of real band. Yeah, which and is a big part of your disco- discography, right? I mean, if you look at your yeah. discography, it's it's like Jerry's solo stuff, and then and and then uh, the uh, King Nancy, uh, period, yeah, which brought you to Toronto as well, right? Yeah, well, as soon as I finished my degree, like a year before I finished my degree, I said to the guys, "Listen, I'm going to Toronto um, to pursue music as soon as like as soon as I graduate next year. Uh, do you guys want to go?" and Within like, you know, less than a minute, all three guys were like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So we spent the next year getting prepared to do that and recording an album and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of happened. So we went to Toronto and we lived together for a year, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then we, uh, you know, we did it for a couple of years. We were in Toronto for four years. And then we got to a point where we felt we didn't have to be in Toronto anymore. Um, so we moved home. And because, uh, you know, for a lot, of guys, a lot of the guys, home was very much where they wanted to go. Some guys yeah. enjoyed the Toronto experience. Some guys didn't. Mm-hmm. So we decided to move home. And all of a sudden, by the time we got home, the guy who initially had suggested we move home, um, I think it was like, I think it was probably like, like around February. We had this conversation. We used to have these, these band meetings all the time. And it was like a February of that year where he suggested we move home after our leases were all up in September. And we were all kind of like, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. Let's let's let's, let's do this. So we talked about it. We hashed it all out. But then he ended up meeting, you know, the girl of his dreams and getting married. So uh, he stayed in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where did you live in Toronto? Um, I'm I'm only asking because that informs me about the kind of sort of experience you had living in Toronto. <laughs> my my first year, I lived on uh, Greenwood and Danforth, close to close to Gerard. Oh yeah, I lived um, in that neighborhood. Yeah, sure. But then the next three years, I lived at Bloor and Spadina on um, Walmer Road. Yeah, that's a much much better place for a rock and roll guy to live than. Yeah, <laughs> than yeah. I moved. I moved up there, and then the other three guys all moved into different places down on the beaches. So it was a bit, it was a bit harder for you know in terms of hanging out all the time. But yeah. three of the four of us all worked at the same restaurant, so like we were always around each other and that kind of thing. So yeah, what are some of the favorite places you got to play in Toronto? Because there's some really, really well. Um, well, you know, we played we played all the, the cool spots. Like I really like the Rivoli. Um, yeah. or just, just really know the, mm-hmm. um, uh, the horseshoe was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee's palace was great. We played there a couple of times. It was really fun. Uh, Elmo combo, yeah. uh, which I mean, has changed shape and size and so many times just even since then. Um, yeah, the Elmo combo is, is, a, is one of the spots where, uh, Rolling Stones recorded a live album at the Elmo combo. It's yep. legendary. A lot of big performers there. And they're, they're, I think they're about to reopen again. Uh, yeah, when, when, when things are no longer shut down in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, and we used to do, we used to like rent these, uh, Legion halls, there's a, le- yep. a Legion hall down stuff, King street. And, uh, the reason we did that was because once you got to a certain level of playing in Toronto, they wanted you to play at the horseshoe every, once every month or so, because you were a draw. But of course, then they make you sign a proximity clause that says you can't play in Toronto for two weeks before and two weeks after. Yeah. Um, and of course, when you play the horseshoe, 
even though it's a great status gig because they, but because there's going to be a you know full crowd, but they're not paying you very well. Yeah. Um, they make you they make you bring like a fifty person plus guest list, and you're one of like four or five bands. Yeah. So you know you're not making any money at it, but you are getting that status. So what we would do is we would book that gig for a Saturday, and then you no, know, we book it for a Friday, and then two weeks plus a day later on a Saturday, we'd rent a Legion Hall and do our own show for our own production. So we'd make all the money. Right. And that's kind of what we did for like the last, I don't know, probably a year that we were there. Like every every month or so, we would play that. And then in between, we would do a couple of mini tours kind of thing, like play around, you know, Southern Ontario, wherever would have us really. Yeah. And those Legion Hall, from my experience going to those, I, I think this is how it works. It's always kind of the same. You go to a Legion Hall show when they have Legion Hall uh, beer prices. Oh, yeah. The, the audience <laughs> Boo- appreciates. Is cheap. <laughs> well, I mean, like the booze was cheap. The rent was cheap. Ironically, the guy, the guy and his wife who ran the place were both from Newfoundland, so they just loved us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anytime we, anytime we called, like, yes, my son, we'll get you, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. So you had a great run with uh, King Nancy. You guys were together for uh, a lot of years, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess like, technically we never really broke up. Is what we always say. We just kind of like we're one guy lives in a different city or a different province. Um, it became the kind of thing where like we weren't really able to play shows unless he came home. So we'd still do it every once in a while. But then when I stopped playing um, myself, actually the last show I played was with King Nancy, a small uh, bar. And I mean, we could have we could have played a big room here in town and you know, filled 250, 300 people. But instead we did it in a small bar with like 100 people. And yeah. it was jammed. It was very not COVID compliant. <laughs> um, and it was a lot of fun. And that was that was our last gig. And I think for all intents and purposes, it might be our last gig because now, you know, time has passed. Uh, we haven't rehearsed, haven't played together in years. The guys aren't coming home as much as they used to. We don't even see each other a lot anymore. So it just kind of, you know, we've never really broken up, but we're still not going to play anytime soon as far as I can tell. So, right. Yeah. So what's, but that what's, was kind of it. When I, when I moved home, I, I started focusing more on the solo thing anyway, because we just knew that King Nancy wasn't going to be everybody's focal point anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so what's, what's, what's next? Just thinking about what was going through your head when you, when you were putting together uh, rogue doubt, that was a while ago. That was 2014. You thought that was going to be the end of your... Yeah, I thought it was going to be the end of my musical journey. Um, yeah. I mean, the disease affected not only my joints, so I couldn't... You know, I have people say, like, well, what about if I play guitar for you? I'm like, it affects my throat as well. So it was affecting yeah. my singing voice. Um, so it became a question of, you know, is this the end? And is, are there other ways to continue on doing things? And maybe, but you're not going to make a solid living at St. John's as a music producer. You're going to have to be able to do chasing after all these different revenue streams, you know, like teaching music and instructing and producing and writing and engineering. And I just didn't have it in me to try and chase all those things while dealing with the complications of a disease like this. Yeah. So I, I had to make that that complicated decision to, you know, kind of retire from music. So that's kind of what, uh, what Rogue Doubt, I knew it was going to be my last album. I didn't know how quickly the end was going to come. Uh, I did not think that within less than a year after Rogue Doubt came out, I would be stopping playing. I thought maybe I'd managed to get another couple of years out of it, mm-hmm. um, which explains why there were so many vinyl records in my basement. Um, but I, I thought uh, for sure that I would have a couple of years. And unfortunately I did not. Uh, but silver lining, I guess, uh, after four years, I was able to start playing again and uh, in small doses and very carefully. And now I just kind of see where things are going. So, yeah, well, it's funny. You said something earlier and that was that, you don't think you'll produce another album, but you might do other singles. I mean, what's, what's I mean, the I mean, it's just the singles are more marketable now that you don't think it's as well, beneficial. I think the, 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 the streaming world, for example, now is much more geared towards singles sure. than it is, you know, the, the 12 or 13 song 
compendium album. Like it's like we don't really focus on albums anymore. As much as I still love albums, especially like you know buying a new album from ours because I still buy them. I don't I don't subscribe to any streaming service. Um, that's not to say I'm awesome because I because I don't. It's just I just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there the idea of putting out uh, spending a lot of time and money on an album is not something I'm thinking about right now. But I do think that some sort of system of putting out a couple of singles might work. You know, I'll, I don't really have a plan uh, from a guy who used to have two year plans, five year plans, 10 year plans, all that stuff. That's how my music career went was always planning for all these little, little steps and then meeting those goals. Uh, one thing this disease has done to me is just taken away all planning because you don't know if you're going to be able to do it or not. Yeah. So I have been thinking about the potential potentiality of doing something. Um, I mean, I did just buy like a new, some new gear to try and, and get back into maybe trying to do some recording. Uh, I've recently, I've only recently started writing again. So uh, we'll see what happens. I've got friends of mine who said like over the last six months, they just randomly messaged me and said like, you know, when this is all over and we're allowed to get back into a studio together, we should go and record a song for a laugh. And they, mm-hmm. they're like, you know, they wouldn't charge me. Like, that's fantastic. Um, when it's going to happen, I don't know, but uh, we'll see, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I will release a, a new couple of singles and see how it goes or, Maybe I'll start writing and come up with a bunch of songs and say, this could be a good album, you know? But of course the question now is like, how do you as a solo independent artist who is not going to tour? Because I'm not going to go put out an album on actual physical CD anymore and then hit the road um, because my touring days are just behind me. You know, it's just not going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could do like a couple of one-off city gigs. Like I could do like St. John's, Halifax, Toronto, that kind of thing. But I'm not going to go and do that, fly to every city in Canada and play and all that stuff. So you know, the, the way I'm thinking about it is that maybe there's sort of subscription service I could do. Like maybe I could like release a new song on Bandcamp or SoundCloud or even on Spotify and stuff every once a month for a year, put 12 songs out at the end of the year. You've got like, bang, there's your album. You know, it's not really like a, a physical album, but it's still an album. It's still a collection of songs. Yeah. So. Yeah. I guess it's a one thing, uh, you know, people who aren't, um, you were in the know of how the music industry works these days. It used to be back in the day that you would produce an album and then you would tour it to advertise the album and people would purchase the album. And now, you know, since Napster, you put out an album and people sort of get it for free. Not sort of, they yeah. get it for free. Yeah. And then you tour to make your money. That's the, the tour is your livelihood. So in your situation, if you're not feeling well, and you're not able to tour. It's, it's harder to make the livelihood. Is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I used to, I've I've been saying for years that like, you know, it used to be, and this is what I tell younger uh, musicians when they, when they come ask me questions about a music career. One of the first things I say is that a lot of people still think about the music industry in the old ways. The problem was the old ways, uh, your album was the product. You know, you put out the album and then you sold the album. You went on tour so that people would buy your album. They would buy your merch and all that kind of stuff because of the strength of your album. But now your album is just a business car. Mm -hmm. You are the product. Yeah. They spend the money on you when they get to go see you play live. So if you're not going to go play live, you're not making money. You're still going to sell merch. You're still going to sell, you know, some CDs and some some records and stuff. But I mean, putting on a, a vinyl record as an independent artist is a fortune. It is basically a vanity project. You're only doing it because you want to put on a record. Yeah. Uh, because there's no financially feasible way to be like, yeah, I'm going to make money off this record. Because most people will not buy that. They're still going to go and stream it for free on Spotify or whatever, or they're going to download the album for free. I've had people come up to me at shows, go, man, I love your record. Buddy of mine burned us all off copies of it, like, you know, 10 years yeah. ago. Like, 
Thanks. Thanks. Did you pay cover? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that you're paying me twice. for such a long time as I'm a, I, I've always, you know, when the Napster thing happened and everything, I was for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, I was buying the albums on iTunes, paying for the mm-hmm. whole album and not just buying the tunes and stuff like that. And then it just became, I realized, I think I'm the only person who's doing this. You know, there's nobody yeah, really I mean, believes I in s- this anymore. I still buy the the digital album on iTunes now. And I keep hearing that iTunes is talking about, you know, closing up shop and just being Apple Music. Yeah. Um, but so far they haven't. So they're still selling the, the albums, which is good because that's the way I want to do it. Mm-hmm. I have downloaded albums. I've definitely, you know, uh, downloaded the album, listened to it and been like, yeah, I want that album. And I go and I buy it. Um, I've downloaded an album, listened to it and been like, yeah, I'm not going to, Sorry, I'm not really a big fan of this album. So then I just deleted it and I've never gone and spent any money on it. I guess yeah. it's more like previewing the album, but I guess it's kind of like it used to be when you used to walk into a record store, grab the album, put it on the CD player or the, the record player and listen to it on headphones and sample yeah. it. You know, do I want this album? Um, but now I do still buy everything I get. Um, like literally every album I, I own now, digital copy or otherwise, is something I purchased. Yeah, uh, And that's why I don't I don't prescribe to, uh, to use a streaming service. Uh, I have nothing against people who do it perfectly makes sense if you don't have any ethical reasons against it then why wouldn't you here's a totally legal system where you pay a minimal fee every year every year or every month and you get to listen to all the music in the world that you want to listen to yeah and pe- want, people love the playlist features people love the uh the if you like this now you're like that features uh which makes perfect sense but for me as an artist i'm like all my songs are on spotify and they're all on you know apple music and google play and all those places because as an artist you got to have your music where the people are listening but you're not making any money at it you're making zero dollars. Spotify is getting richer and richer and the artists are getting ripped off, but that's the way of the world right now. So until we figure out how music industry, you know, 6.7 is going to work, here's where we are, you know, well, we're going to yeah, find new ways to make money. Yeah. And you know, the one thing that really I find uh, encouraging, which I really love is the uh, resurgence of vinyl. I'm a big fan of vinyl. There's, there was, uh, I've collected it since I was a kid. I, I, I fell in love with a lot of uh, music in the early days when I couldn't afford to go. When I was a kid, I couldn't, it's probably the same thing for you. When I was a little kid, I couldn't afford to go out and buy records or I didn't know anything about that, but I was looked through my parents' record collection and they were cool enough that they had some neat albums. So I discovered yeah. CCR and, yeah. you know, Willie Nelson and a bunch of other amazing artists that they had in their collection. And uh, I fell in love with those those bands. And then, and then I, you know, as I started to make some money or I'd get, you know, Christmas money and birthday money and stuff, I asked my mom, can you go to the record store and pick up this new album by the police or this album? She used to make mistake once in a while. Actually, we, we sent her out one time to get um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the album that, Cheap Tricks album that had Dream Police on it. Okay. And she came home with uh, uh, the Police's album, Regatta de Blanc, which came out in 1979. Oh, nice. And uh, she, I said, that's, oh, that's not what we wanted. And she said, well, I can bring it back. I said, well, my brother and I said, let's, let's listen to it. Because you could open yeah. it up and listen to it and still send it back. And we started listening to this thing. Our minds were blown. Yeah. And it was like that's a rock and reggae. And, and, we were, and she's like, well, I can bring it back. We're like, we're keeping it. You know? And, <laughs> and that's how my, we started uh, to discover music uh, that way. And now my brother bought a turntable and during the pandemic he's been buying all these classic albums on vinyl and the kids have been sitting around and listening to these albums because they got a lot of time now so they sit in the basement and they lie in the carpet you know it's not a shag carpet like it was back in the day but they lie (laughs) back and they're and i'm sending them albums 
Uh, I, I, that's my thing now. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm buying albums on Amazon or wherever services and, and I'm having them sent to their house. <laughs> like nice. this is one of my favorites and you should listen to this and you should listen to that. And so, you know, uh, my nephew is sending me notes saying, Oh, one of my favorite albums of all time is, uh, is, uh, the clash of London calling. And so he sent yeah. me notes about that. And then I send him, um, uh, REM's, um, automatic for the people, which is an album I adore. It's one of my favorite albums. And then he's sending me back notes and saying, Oh, my favorite song is, uh, the side where under sleeps tonight and i'm so oh, that's a surprise you know nice yeah. and uh that's been a lot of fun that that they're getting to uh discover older music and classics and stuff like that and i think the big part of that is that those those artists put out albums that were meant to be heard a certain way in the sequence yeah. they're laid out not in singles and uh if you listen to any pink floyd album you you know they're they're beautifully laid out the way the way yeah. the artist intended it to be not I mean, so much, so much time goes into so much time and energy and you know, blood, sweat and tears goes into not just recording an album, but mapping it out. Is there like uh, segues between songs? Is there some sort of thematic revelation? Not necessarily a theme album, but is there something that is building to a point, the ebb and flow of an album? You know, does it start with a slow song instead of a fast song and then back and forth? I mean, song four, for example, was, that was the first big slow song on an album. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when I was a kid, I noticed that Every album that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, song four was the first real slow song. Yeah. And then the album kind of picked up from there. And song seven or eight was like the big, one of the big rockers. It was like this weird thing that was never really talked about, but just seemed to always happen. And it kind of just promoted the idea that everybody fundamentally, when you're writing an album, works towards that golden mean of like, here's where the crescendos are. Here's where the decrescendos are. Here's the, the, the dynamic shift of an album. And I know it's totally arty and might not even be a real thing, but I've really believed it for so long. Um, so I love the fact that your, your, your nephews and stuff are, are listening to, uh, the, these albums. I mean, that's how I grew up too. Just like the whole, you know, just sit there and lie down, listen to an album. Like I have friends of mine who are like, Oh, I'm loving this new album by so-and-so lady. And I'm like, cool. Did you sit down and listen to it without doing anything else? Like, no, mostly just been while I've been like making dinner or doing laundry or whatever. I'm like, no, no, you gotta, like, you gotta like lie on your couch or on your bed or something. Just lie there and just listen to the album a couple of times. Yeah. Well, you're and I still do that. and everything. Oh man, I miss liner notes so much, especially as a graphic designer. Like I miss liner notes. I miss yeah. the the lyric sheets and the the fact that for no apparent reason there's 84 pages of photos and they go along with this album. I love it. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah, and then all the like, like the little Easter eggs and bullshit that used to write it. Yeah. Notes and everything. Well, people people have been asking um People started requesting iTunes allow people to uh, to add like you know digital PDFs to their artwork years ago. And I was I actually had a digital PDF done uh, of the artwork for Rogue Doubt to put it on iTunes. But to do that, you had to become a content uh, supplier mm -hmm. or a content publisher. And a content publisher was like a thousand bucks a year just to be the publisher. That doesn't include when you're actually putting up an album, how much that costs. Right. Yeah. So it's, it explains why it's only like the major label artists who get to put up like the PDFs for their artwork because they're the ones that have the, the content publishing money. Yeah. So I was like, I can't afford as an independent artist to spend a thousand dollars and then spend more money to get this album up there. Just so like seven people might look through and go, Oh, cool. I see the lyric there. It's great. Yeah. You know, it's so. another funny thing about vinyl is I've got boxes and boxes and boxes of and cases, uh, like big traveling cases full of uh, vinyl back in my locker in Toronto that uh, is <laughs> just sitting there waiting oh, for yeah. something to happen. Maybe I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but. Uh, a lot of those uh, albums are, you know, albums I've had since I was 
10 years old or something and they've got scratches in them and stuff. And, and mm. when I hear them, I listen to tunes and I know where the pops and the scratches and the, you know, the imperfections are that happen because shit was happening in my bedroom. When we were wrestling or listening to a talk, you know, and, yeah. and I hear those songs and I hear the pop and it's reassuring, you know, that, that little imperfection <laughs> <in the> song <laughs> that I, uh, while I was I, I punching a, my brother or something back in the day. <laughs> I had a 45, I had a 45 record of Joey Scarberry singing the theme to the greatest American hero that started yeah. off with a for no reason. There was a little yeah. kind of just burr in the, in the, the edge of the, the record. And to, to this day, if I hear that kind of sound anywhere, I'm just like, ba in the key. Like it's so, I heard it so often that I know the key based on a sound that doesn't even have a pitch. I know. <laughs> like, it's weird, isn't it? Things like, like, <laughs> or like the opening to a, the opening drum clicks to one by U2. Yeah. When I hear those, I know exactly what the first note is going to be. Like it's some sort of weird relative pitch, but like drumsticks don't make a pitch. How yeah. do I know that? It's just this weird memory recall. It's, I love that yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 It's, it's all part of the experience, right? Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I'm looking forward to getting those uh, those albums back. I don't know how to get them down to Costa Rica. That'll be a, be a very expensive. <laughs> That's going to be a hard struggle. Yeah. <laughs> I'll figure it out one of these days. I, I I hate to give them up, you know. Yeah, I gave up Bob Martin a couple of years ago when I was. Uh, I basically sold most of my possessions to to move to Costa Rica. Um, so I, I was going to sell all my records, and my dad was helping me sell stuff. And I said to him, "Do not sell these records." So I come home one day, I was staying at his place because of you know, disease and stuff. And um, I come home one day and he's like, uh, guess what? Sold all your records. It's like, uh, what? He's like, yeah, I sold them all. I was like, how much? He's like, 25 bucks. I was like, oh my God. There was like a first pressing edition of like Real Statics Whale Music that was worth yeah. like a couple hundred bucks. He actually sold the uh, the original, uh, uh, what is it called? Masters to my, uh, to Rogue Doubt. The vinyl mm-hmm. test masters, yeah. test presses. Uh, luckily, I got them back. I found out I had to find out from the guy who sold them to another guy to another guy, like where I got them. The guy, the guy sold them back to me. He said, "By uh, if I gave him ten copies of Rogue Out to sell, he'd give me back the masters." I was like, "Thanks, bud." Little, <laughs> little does he know that's like free currency because I've got like a couple of hundred copies in my basement. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one of the last things that we did while we were, uh, uh, you know. Uh, selling off all our property in Toronto to, to come down to Costa Rica, uh, was, I, I got rid of all my CDs and you, you can't show up at a record shop anymore and sell all kinds of CDs. They're really not worth much. Uh, so I, you know, I ended up just bringing them down to the recycle room, uh, when there was a, you know, in my condo mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, there was an area where people would just, you know, kind of lay out their stuff that, you know, was understood, just take whatever you like. And so I went and nicely put out all my CDs and there was hundreds of them. And uh, I was doing a few different trips. And at one point I came down with more and there was a guy in there with his girlfriend. And he's like, are these your albums that you just dropping off? I said, yeah. He said, dude, thank you so much. He goes, you got really good taste. He goes, I just grabbed a couple hundred and he started rhyming off all the albums. He, he loved that. I dropped off that, that they were going to take back and, and bring up to their condo. And I was like, well, that's, that's amazing. That's about the yeah, best yeah. I could, I could do a second life in this circumstance. I, uh, I brought a lot of my dad to, uh, to Fred's records. It's a local record store here in town, but they also sell like some secondhand CDs and they took a lot of them. Uh, all of my classical stuff, like the, the high end classical recordings, I donated to the university, to the music school, yeah. uh, along with some like old score books and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a sad sort of weird uh, feeling to like, you know, get rid of all your music. But I mean, you still have it. Yeah. I still have like 
a you know backup drive upon backup drive of like hundreds of gigs of digitized music. Yeah. But uh, it's just, you know, it's different. Of course, I mean, it's not as tactile. I mean, a CD is not as cool as vinyl and you know, a digital recording is not as cool as the CD. It's, it's you know, it's all yeah. across the place, but yeah, it is what it is. You, you yeah. live in you. I think for me, it was more about just, uh, you know, the friends of mine who were like, oh, I can't believe you're getting rid of all your vinyl and your CDs and stuff. I'm like, well, it comes to the point in your life when you choose, do you want to have the experiences or do you want to have the, the physical albums? Because, I mean, as long as you can start the songs, I'm happy. Yeah, for sure. I, feel yeah, the same I can way. still hear the music, so. Yeah. All right, my friend. I'm looking forward to seeing your show wherever you end up playing when you get back here. I think it's probably not too far off. I I'm hope so. Early uh, next we'll year. See. You seem to be yeah. uh, doing, uh, doing pretty well and, and uh, being, in, being invigorated that you get to still go out and play these gigs. So That's I'm excited. Hope, to- as long as those things stay the same way they are now. Yeah, uh, I you know I don't have any real plan at this point in time until I'm vaccinated. I'm not even going to look at going anywhere. But if things work out, then probably, you know, winter, January or something. I think it's a good conservative guess yeah. as to when things are going to be back. I'm kind of kind of re re uh, reinvestigating every couple of months or weeks and saying, how's that looking now? We'll yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you, once you do uh, set up that gig, I'm going to help you promote the hell out of that because I'm looking forward <laughs> to it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I, I'm sure you're going to be looking forward to getting back. And uh, I think part of your tribe here was uh, the, the uh, your friends over at Zarpe. I'm sure they miss you right, oh, yeah. right now. Yeah, I talked to the, talked to some of the guys. Uh, Alexander, in particular, is a good buddy of mine. Uh, we talk every couple of weeks. Just kind of catch up on what's going on and who's still around and who's not. Because I mean, a lot of their friends have gone back to like Nicaragua or whatever town they their family was in when the pandemic hit. So you know, things are things are definitely going to be different down there. But I'm sure by the time I get back, there'll be a lot more. Uh, a lot more open things, a lot more new, new restaurants, new bars, new nightlife, who knows? Yeah. I think so. You, you know, you, the thing is about this place and, and, and I've seen it in other cities too, is it's amazing. Things can get really hard, but how resilient people are. You would not believe how many new businesses are open here. I've seen a bunch on online and it kind of, sometimes it blows my mind. I'm just like, looking at them like, where did this place come from? Where is it? Like what, yeah. what part of town is it in? You know, it's, and where, it's well, how do they have the nerve to start a business at this point in our, our yeah, history? Right. Is the big is the whatever, question as well? Whatever you can do, I, I guess. There's a lot of people who are looking at it and saying, "Well, you know, if there's ever time to do it, now's the time because got to make money somehow, and might as well be a, my own boss." So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's uh, the the beauty of human resiliency as well. I think, and plus, I think yeah. at this point in time, it might be a little bit easier to get a cheaper rent. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, Jerry. I thank you very much for your for your time. It was uh, wonderful talking to you, and it was really fun talking uh, about music and uh, and getting into uh, sort, of especially uh, uh, chatting about uh, being a music lover and um, and that shared experience. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, you know, looking forward to seeing you again too. Okay, take care, brother. Thanks, man. All the best. There you have it, my conversation with Jerry Stamp. As I say at this point in every episode, thanks again to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And once you do that, go over to Apple Music and buy a copy of one of Jerry's amazing albums. Artists like Jerry aren't able to perform these days due to the pandemic, of course, so support your favorite bands and singers by doing it the old-fashioned way, by actually paying them for their time and talent. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash cool story with David J. McNeil to make a pledge today. And finally, thank you for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida.
What's yours?